Welcome everyone to our first program of the year. Want to give a little bit of recognition to our uh, new programs chairs, Jerry Moore with American Red Cross and Jonathan Biffro with JLL. Welcome is the new chair. And I have to give a special thank you to uh, Tony Smaniato, who has been my wingman the last four years, and he's now graduated and serving the chapter as our treasurer. Thank you, Tony. So our uh, programs team is looking forward to bringing you lots of fresh content this year. Uh, there's going to be a lot more alignment with Cornet Global. This year's theme is business, or sorry, disruptive innovation, the business of change. Uh, next month, our topic is uh, talking about my generation, and it'll feature the CEO, John Challenger, with Challenger Gray and Christmas, and John Danderand of John Deere to come and discuss managing multiple generations in the workplace. Uh, please continue to monitor the website and eblasts for more information. Uh, today, we are also using our conference I.O. system. Uh, plug in cornet.cnf.io in your smart devices, and that will help facilitate our Q&A portion of the event. Uh, if you have your MCR, see Beth for your continuing education credits. Now, also, special thank you to R.J. Brennan with Royal Brennan for helping us with today's program. Can't forget about you, R.J. <laughs> Today's topic, our annual economic forecast. In our monthly surveys, our top two topics that always come up are jobs in the economy. So we're kicking off our year again, backed by popular demand, and thanks for coming in on a cold day when the Federal Reserve is closed. <laughs> They're still working. Our uh, senior economists and economic advisors with the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Please welcome to the stage Bill Strauss, and Rick Mattoon will join him later. And you took the microphone. Well, I got, I got my own, I guess. <laughs> we can get rid of this. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. So, a uh, pleasure to join you again. RJ, how many years has this been? Countless. Eight years, eight years, nine years. Anyway, it's a pleasure to join you. Um, so with regard to the outlook, uh, 2014 was, uh, you know, not a bad year. We continued to see growth. We're waiting for fourth quarter data uh, to come in, which will be announced at the end of this month from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. But uh, it certainly would continue to grow. And our expectations are that we grew at a pace that was near trend or maybe slightly better than that, as we'll see with some of the numbers that I'll put up here. Um, but probably as we look forward, uh, the growth is expected to accelerate. But I would say relative to the last several years where I have thought about where the economy is going, there's probably a bit more uncertainty with regard to that, uh, largely driven by uh, the big events in 2014, which happened right towards the very end. Uh, in large part, it was this uh, reassessing view with regard to how world growth would be performing. Um, and that began to be recognized to a greater extent in October, uh, in particular when the IMF came out with their revised forecast for world economic growth. And that in, was kind of linked with the start of energy prices moving lower. Um, and uh, we've seen that as kind of the second major effect, which has been not just a reduction in energy prices, but an outright collapse, where energy prices uh, uh, over the past several months are, are basically half of what they were during the summertime. Um, so uh, concerns about how do we interpret that, you know, how much of that is supply, how much is, is demand. Those of you who remember your... Uh, microeconomics 101, uh, you have two goods uh, or a good that has basically both demand and supply being fairly inelastic, which would suggest that it doesn't take much of a move, either a large, in uh, a somewhat of an increase in supply 
or somewhat of a reduction in demand uh, to cause some very wild swings with regard to prices. But how much of that is the weakness in demand from, from this revised world economic view, and how much of it is just additional supply coming on the market, uh, we're really spending a lot of time trying to figure out, and I think that has added uh, somewhat to the uncertainty. I'll talk a little bit more about the energy sector. Um, but as we look at how we have performed, uh, growth, as I mentioned, has continued. We're now uh, into our sixth year of the economic expansion. Uh, after a pretty tough first quarter of last year, you remember the, uh, the, the, the Arctic freeze that we were dealing with, this polar vortex, uh, really impacted logistics and uh, activity in, in the business sector. Um, uh, but also we had a bit of an inventory swing. And that decline in the first quarter uh, was offset to some degree uh, by some pretty good numbers in the second and third quarter, where growth uh, came in at roughly a 5% rate. On a year-over-year -year basis, 2.7% growth. Uh, this is a little bit above what we think of as trend rate of growth of roughly 2 to 2.25%. The housing market has continued to improve. Although I would say, in general, once again, uh, most of us were disappointed by the pace of its improvement. Uh, we were expecting it to do a bit better. Home prices have continued to rise, but still, in real terms, you'd have to go back more than 10 years ago to see similar le uh, levels. And in terms of activity of housing starts, and this includes multifamily, single family, and I see somebody taking a picture of the slides, I'll just mention the fact that all these slides will be made available to you, especially one of my slides is practically illegible, um, and, and I apologize for that, but I wanted to get into uh, some detail. But expectations are we, we, we're waiting for December data to come in, uh, but the according to Blue Chip, this is roughly 50 professional forecasters who uh, pr submit their uh, analysis each month, and this is the December 10th release. Uh, they see uh, housing starts coming in at just shy of a million units. That's still roughly two-thirds of what the market would normally be producing. Um, and for next, or for this year, a level that is still a couple of hundred thousand below what is a normal market. So their blue chip people are definitely thinking that this housing market still has uh, a year or so more before we can talk about it getting back to normal. Uh, the stock market uh, has been very helpful with regard to repairing financial balance sheets, especially for those individuals who are looking at retirement. Uh, they're certainly looking at their equity holdings, their 401k positions, and they're feeling more comfortable, and hence uh, they tend to see some additional spending that results out of that. Uh, typically, 1% to 3% of your wealth gains off of equities uh, winds up uh, affecting the current economy. So again, this has been a very helpful part of, of the growth. So what is expected? Well, according to Blue Chip, uh, they're expecting, uh, with the most recent forecast, uh, for GDP to slow down from its more torrid pace of the second and third quarter, but still be positive, resulting in growth for the year coming in on a fourth over fourth basis for 2014 of 2.2%, roughly a trend rate of growth. Uh, they see that growth rate accelerating this year up to about a 2.9% rate of growth. So a uh, nice improvement, but again, nothing that would be characterized as being, you know, a real significant growth. It's more of just a, a relatively improved economy's growth relative to trend. Um, what about the Fed? Well, the Fed just updated uh, their quarterly forecast uh, at the end of December with what is referred to as the SEP, the Summary of Economic Projections. And here I'm presenting the midpoint values uh, for that central tendency. And as you can see, the Fed is thinking uh, not too dissimilar from blue chip that on a fourth or fourth basis, we're looking at growth that is right around trend or just on the top end of trend for 2014. And then this year, growth that is just shy of 3% for this year. Um, but then the Fed, because of the lags in monetary policy, have to look out a little bit further than just one year, which is all blue chip is doing. So we go out to 2016 and 2017. And the growth that we're seeing is that 2016 is probably going to have another good growth year. Again, 
decent but not impressive. Uh, and then the interesting thing is you often hear people talk about these stories of pent-up demand. You think about the housing market, right? It's contributed very little to economic growth over the past uh, recovery. In fact, just one-tenth of one percent uh, contribution factor to uh, this trend rate of growth that we've been experiencing for the economy. And we have all these kids living at home with their parents or living with roommates. If we could just get them to go out on their own, that can generate a lot of activity with, with, with buying furniture and, 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 and stuff. And, you know, we can see a growth rate of 4 or 5% just down the road if we can just unleash this pent-up demand. Well, the 2017 forecast, as you can see, is actually calling for growth that is uh, uh, approaching trend now. So that kind of breakout year, at least by the typical forecaster for the Fed, is just not likely to occur. Um, and to kind of show you, I've, I've presented this each year to kind of show you how different this recovery has been. Here's a chart which is looking at the business cycles for the two previous deep downturns, uh, the mid-70s and the early 80s. And you can see how much more spectacularly those two lines, which are the two top lines there, have performed relative to the current cycle, where, yes, we're larger today than ever before with our economy. Uh, it's, you know, something on the order of 13-plus percent above its level of the middle of 2009. Uh, um, but, again, from a relative perspective, we've underperformed past cycles. In fact, for the previous cycles, over this time period, they have averaged something on north of 4% growth, either 4.3, 4.9% growth over this prolonged period. What we have seen in this cycle, which is referred to as the Great Recession, because we saw a greater loss of output than any other period since the 1930s, an output decline at an excess of 4%, but also a period of 18 months with, with, uh, with no growth when we should have gone up by, let's call it 3% over that 18-month period, resulting in a 7% slack in the economy, a gap that was created. Well, how much did we remove that gap? You need to grow faster than trend, but what we've witnessed over the past five and a quarter years is a growth rate of just 2.3% annualized rate trend. This says that we should still have large amount of slack in the economy. I already talked about the housing sector as being one that is clearly uh, the most depressed uh, part of our economy. Uh, the employment side, though, is showing a bit better numbers of late. But I would still say you got to be a little careful because you got to kind of peel back the layers of this onion to see, uh, you know, whether that inside of it is 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 rotten or not. Uh, and to a degree, I would say it's not the most healthy onion, uh, for that analogy. But the growth rate has definitely improved. Uh, we're definitely seeing improvement in terms of uh, uh, on a year-over-year -year basis. We're seeing uh, growth of of close to two percent. Um, and that's very decent. That's about twice what our population, labor force growth, is growing at. Um, uh, but we can get into the issue about the quality of jobs. And certainly tomorrow we get the labor report, and that will probably be one of the most important numbers that we'll get for uh, January. Uh, and when we look at the unemployment rate, that has also come down it's, and resides now below 6%. And a very significant drop in the uh, unemployment rate. But still, Let's keep things in mind that at, even at 5.8%, it remains about probably half a percentage point above what we think of as the natural rate of unemployment. And every percentage point on these labor charts is about 2.5 million workers. So here we're talking about we're over a million workers still away from getting back to that normal rate. Uh, however, the other part of that unemployment story is the fact that we've seen a very significant drop in the labor force participation rate. Uh, now, a, but the drop of three percentage points since the Great Recession can be overblown uh, because, in fact, as you can see, the labor force participation rate has been falling not just since 2008, but it's been falling since it peaked in 2000 largely because of demographics. Uh, people, the aging population, tend to participate at a lower rate. Uh, so we have seen that come down and would have come down regardless about having a great recession or not. How much would it have come down? Estimates are, from a number of different sources, anywhere from one and a half to two percentage points of that three percentage point drop 
is probably explained just by the demographics. So we would have seen that go down regardless. But that still says that there's probably a percentage point to maybe a percentage point and a half that is not explained by that, that is still responsible for uh, or caused by the troubled economy that we are operating in. So there you got about two and a half to perhaps four million workers that have basically dropped out of the labor force. Um, and for those who are unemployed, uh, the other uh, concern is the fact that we find the very large share of that pool of unemployed workers who remain unemployed for an excessive amount of time. These are the percentage of the unemployed pool who have been unemployed in excess of six months. Now, historically, this chart goes back to 1950. Past cycles, the highest it would ever get is 25% at the worst point of the economy. Here, currently, into our sixth year of an expansion, it remains at over 30%. So clearly, we've got some challenges with finding out how to engage these individuals. Um, and then we have another measurement that would represent the kind of quality of the jobs that are being created, is that the share of workers who uh, would like to work full-time but, in fact, have part-time employment is unusually high. In the past, they would kind of hang out around 3%. And we're about four and three quarter percent, four and a half percent. Uh, and that again would be reflective of roughly four million workers who, you know, are looking for a better job, certainly more hours. So their incomes are not what they would like it to be, and hence they're not doing as well for their families as they would like it to be. And certainly one of the other indicators which would give you a sense of, of how much slack there is or whether slack is being removed is what's happening on wages. And when you look at real wage gains, it remains very, very restrained. Um, basically, less than 1% real wage gains, whether you look at wages and salaries or even the benefit cost side of that sector. It is just uh, not moving up. And one would expect, as you are approaching this natural rate of unemployment, if it was really getting to that point, you would see more activity here. You would hear more uh, and about people being bid away from, from companies who are finding it a challenge to get employees, uh, and that we would see this greater amount of pressure. But nonetheless, the expectations are for the unemployment rate to continue to move lower. Blue chip sees it approaching that natural rate by the end of this year. Uh, the Fed sees a very similar pattern, and uh, getting towards that natural rate by the end of this year, and then kind of hanging out around it, or maybe just towards the bottom end of that natural rate. Um, and. Uh, uh, that, again, suggests that the labor markets are getting closer and closer to that effect, and hopefully we will begin to see some better wage performance. Still, though, when we talk about how the economy's been performing, hopefully you're getting a sense that, uh, you know, it's a matter of uh, the slack in the economy. Our growth has been just so-so. Uh, and by the way, last year, I think I made the joke that, the, we, you know, U.S. is good news and bad news about it, and that's the fact that we're the... Uh, we probably have the strongest economy in the world, and that's still true today. And the bad news is, is that we have the strongest economy in the world, uh, which is probably still true today. Uh, because again, it's not like we're setting uh, a record or the, you know, the world on fire with how, how we are doing. Um, and so when you look at this, the question is, where is the inflationary pressure going to come from, especially when you have s still remaining slack in the economy? And I had you know, giving you the forecast that we were not expecting to see inflation uh, do much over the, over the course of the year, and certainly it has remained well-contained, and especially with the fact of what's happened to energy prices towards the end of the year, this certainly is going to continue to actually move lower. Um, so looking at energy, you know, December uh, came in at, uh, you know, this roughly $60 a barrel. Uh, as we started this year, it's trading below $50 a barrel. And there's where the concern is, is how much of that is a supply versus demand. Um, but all in all, it will have some positive effects with regard to economic growth. Actually, I'm more optimistic about its positive effects in many parts of the world outside of the U.S., outside of the oil-producing uh, countries, uh, you know, such as, you know, or energy-producing countries like Russia, uh, the Middle East, and uh, Venezuela, so forth. I think they're going to find some real challenges there since they fund most of their government and 
programs off of the energy sector. They've just got a, a big cut to their income. But most of the other parts of the world, Japan, Europe, China, are energy importers to a very significant degree. And they have just seen a significant cut in the costs of their doing business. So that will be helpful in terms of some of their growth. For the US, it's still going to be positive, but not as much as it might have been in the past. So here's the natural gas prices also remaining low, even with this you know, very cold start of the season that we've seen. Um, and when we look at the total spend by consumers uh, for energy goods and services, so filling up your vehicle, paying your gas bill, your electric bill, remains exceptionally low at around five cents out of every dollar spent compared to the historical average of over six cents. So this is going to benefit consumers where they have extra amount of money that they can use towards other goods and services or perhaps paying down debt. It will be helpful for them. But in the past, we would have normally talked about the outright benefit that we get from this reduction in energy prices. Not so much the case today. In part, it's our own fault. It's been one of our programs to try to encourage greater amount of energy independence. And we've had great success in that. Uh, we're one of the largest oil producers in the world and natural gas producers in the world. And because of that, we're importing significantly less energy than we have in the past. The reason why a, a decline in energy prices was an outright benefit for the US was because it meant that we were sending less dollars overseas. More of those dollars could stay in the US. But as we have reduced our amount of imports, the less dollars that we're now paying for energy are actually going to other Americans, other American companies. So the benefits that the consumers are likely to experience are going to come at a greater cost to those individuals who work in the energy sector, uh, whether it's down in Texas, Oklahoma, the, 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 the shale areas. Uh, and so they're going to see some income hits, and that will have some negative effects. Uh, and we're already seeing that with some of our other sectors who are related to energy. There's been an announcement by you know, steel firms who are cutting back on production because of the lack of demand of oil country tubular goods uh, for new drilling to take place. Uh, so not all, not all net positive, uh, but it will be uh, positive in general. Uh, okay, so removing food and energy prices, the underlying rate of inflation, uh, also looking fairly weak. And that's why, you know, our president at the Chicago Fed has been still on the more aggressive side of, uh, of monetary policy because of that lack of inflationary pressure that uh, we continue to see. What's the outlook for inflation? Well, according to Blue Chip, uh, less than 2% uh, for the CPI, uh, both uh, last year as well as for this year. For the Fed target of 2% for the PCE uh, price index, uh, we're not going to achieve that. Uh, we're going to uh, see some pretty low numbers uh, for this coming year. But next year, it goes back up, but still below that 2% target, but approaching it. So we're going to be getting closer to it. And for the underlying rate of inflation, the core PCE showing some moderate improvements, um, and, but not exceeding that 2%. So here's my unreadable chart. Um, but again, you'll get a copy of these. Largely, I wanted, this chart here shows the growth rates that's expected uh, by the blue chip forecast group for world economies. And it's not a pretty picture. Um, here you've got the Eurozone. Uh, growth last year of just less than 1%. Keep in mind the Eurozone is an economic size equivalent to the, uh, the US, uh, with about 200 million more people than the US. Uh, but their growth is less than 1% last year, and it accelerates up to 1.2% for this year. Um, we are the envy. Uh, we, when we meet with these European countries, they would love to be able to get even the, this mediocre growth that we've been achieving here. Uh, it's the envy of these developed economies. And when you look at the, uh, the, uh, some of the emerging economies, Brazil grew at just 0.2% last year, uh, expected to grow at 1% this year. They just had the World Cup. They're getting the Olympics in a year and a half, and yet growth is, all in all, not very impressive. Russia's growth, 
0% last year, 0% this year, no growth. Um, and my guess is when we get the revised values uh, this month, it's probably going to take Russia down even more, given that those prices have fallen uh, much further. China's growth continues to slow, expected to be less than 7% this year. Uh, India showing a little bit better performance. But in general, pretty weak growth around the world that will continue. Our manufacturing sector remains uh, one of our stellar sectors for the economy. Uh, it is now producing more than it ever has. Uh, and more importantly, the growth towards the end of the year has accelerated. And outside of the energy sector, uh, people still remain very optimistic. And in part, it's a very energy intensive sector. So this reduction in energy costs will really benefit them. Uh, so we're, we're going to see some better profits coming out of this industry. And the good news on that is that capacity utilization for this sector remains, or not remains, but has moved up to levels that we are now can pretty much call it at full utilization of our manufacturing sector. Why is that important? Because over the past year, ever increasingly, my contacts, uh, our contacts at the bank, uh, have suggested that we're not just investing to cut costs, save money, to be more efficient, uh, uh, some quality improvement. They're actually investing to produce more goods. And that's really the first time since the recovery began that we have heard an ever-increasing number of, of companies who are basically buying more uh, buildings, breaking down walls to expand, uh, and that will be, again, good for the production side of our economy, which is expected to continue to do relatively well. Growth that will be above 3%. 3% is a long-run trend. So we're looking at a very, again, uh, decent year for manufacturing. The auto side, you know, has been really impressive. This, has, again, is kind of surprised on the upside, as much as housing surprised on the downside. Autos came in quite a bit better than what was expected. Um, but as people have continued to get jobs, uh, many of those individuals need to replace their more aged vehicles. Average age of a vehicle is around 11 years. Uh, so uh, this is likely to continue to show some pretty good uh, growth. 16.4 uh, for last year, 16.8 million for this year. Uh, about a 2% growth rate, but still uh, at a level of production, given that this uh, industry is operating at pretty good capacity levels, is a very good sign for, uh, for the sector. My last thing to talk about is the financial markets. And I've used this one before. And you might recall uh, I used this especially when we were on that, the verge of the fiscal cliff and the sequestration and all that. And I kept pointing out how you know these guys were all just trending lower and lower. And they seemed to be not so concerned. This is the credit spread, the difference between the bond yields of high yield versus corporate AAA. Um, in fact, for most of last year, uh, it was below 2%. In fact, I would say I was nervous that it was too low. And I was hearing stories about deals that were being made that were really not being, you know, risk was not being taken into account as much as others. And, and some companies were telling us, some banks and other lenders were talking about how they're walking away from deals because it just made no sense to fund them like that. Uh, things changed, and they began to move higher. And uh, they began to move higher in the middle of the year, and it largely uh, linked up with, uh, I believe, the, the concerns of what was taking place in Iraq with ISIS. Uh, that's when they began to move higher. Uh, but then we had a lot of other stuff that happened as the year went on. A uh, little spike here, right there, that was Ebola, which spiked up, and then the concerns came back down. Um, as it became clear that we weren't all going to be dying from Ebola. Um, and then, but things have moved back up. And I think the most recent jump up has to do with those concerns that I shared with you. The uncertainty surrounding world growth, stability factors with regard to those countries uh, that I highlighted, uh, and the collapse of energy prices, uh, which is, again, attributing, uh, contributing to all of that. Um, but. How I would characterize this, you know, I think it, 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 it's gone up to a point where we need to be paying a little bit more attention to it. I think this is part reflecting my concerns about where we are, you know, a little more risk out there in terms of uncertainty. So with that in mind, the Fed has continued to keep interest rates very low. 
basically a zero interest rate policy since 2000, December of 2008. Uh, the Fed has uh, started to come out with their forecasts of where they see interest rates going. And where we see uh, interest rates is about a percentage point increase this year. So, uh, but, and those of you who are dot chart, dot chart followers for the Fed, um, our president, Charles Evans, has uh, stated that he's the zero dot, one of the two zero dots for 2015. Uh, he would uh, like to wait. He thinks uh, there's greater risk to moving too early than waiting, especially given the inflation path that we're, that we're seeing in the economy. Um, and, uh, and by the way, uh, these, these, these increases have actually moderated over the last couple of uh, meetings. So I think, if anything, Charlie's view is, is becoming more, more in line uh, with the, with the, the committee's getting more in line with Charlie's views. Uh, and then by 2017, the committee expects to see its funds rate close to the neutral level. So when we begin to raise these interest rates, oftentimes we've heard people make the point, well, isn't that going to cause the economy to slow? Isn't that going to be a, a drag on the economy? So again, as I shared in the past, you want to be thinking about these rate increases, not like putting the brakes on the economy, but we're taking the foot off the accelerator of the economy. We're speeding right now. Clearly, 0% is not a long-term strategy for our interest rate policy. I hope everybody can understand that. And in fact, we should all be waiting for the time that we can be getting up to neutral, because that's going to basically tell us that the US economy can be sustaining itself without the need of the Fed uh, being helpful for, for policy. And that, I think, we, could, we would all want to celebrate. Uh, given that we couldn't go negative on our interest rates as much as we thought about it, uh, we did alternative policies, which was to uh, increase our balance sheet, so this quantitative easing, which uh, as you know, recently we've, we've, we've now stopped adding to the size of our balance sheet as we are seeing improvement in the economy to the point of beginning to think about removing some of the accommodation. Um, but nonetheless, the balance sheet is very large, more than fivefold what it had been. Mistake that is often made, in fact, uh, uh, Charlie uh, had a little presentation, or uh, they had a little discussion last night on the Becker Friedman Institute hosted an event at the Fed last night uh, with uh, uh, Professor uh, uh, Hansen, Nobel Prize winner. Um, and one of the questions that came out of the audience focused on, isn't this balance sheet going to be inflationary? Uh, and of course, it's, this is not the money supply. In fact, they quoted Friedman, good thing to do at a Becker Friedman Institute meeting, where Friedman said inflation always and everywhere is a monetary phenomena. So therefore, isn't this going to be inflationary? Shouldn't we see the price level rise by fivefold? Problem is, the monetary base, the blue line, is not the money supply. The money supply is really based upon the financial sector lending money. We just kind of give that initial injection, what's called high-powered money. And, and a lot of this money that we've injected into the economy has not made its way in terms of loans. Why? Numerous reasons. Everything from the fact that the ability of obtaining a mortgage has become more difficult because of some regulation, because of some concerns on the part of, of lenders and borrowers from that standpoint. Uh, many, you know, there's been lack of demand in so many areas, including the business sector. And profits are doing well, so many businesses are just self-funding whatever limited investments they're making. So we haven't seen the kind of loan creation that would normally generate a large income increase in the money supply. Because what we're, what we're trying to do is avoid what happened during the 1930s. What Friedman won his Nobel Prize for uh, was understanding what was taking place during the Great Depression. And during the Great Depression, the Fed did increase the monetary base. But given all of the collapsing that was taking place in the banking sector, all the, clo the bank closures, the bank failures that took place, the actual loan values actually went down. Loans were not created. They were called. They were destroyed. Uh, and therefore, we saw the money supply contract, what Friedman referred to as the great contraction. And look at the red line there. That's the CPI. It went down and stayed low. So we had this deflation that resulted during this period uh, of the 1930s. And when you look at what 
the Fed has done, well, we tried to learn from our errors of the 1930s. Uh, and so we didn't take any chances, and we've taken our balance sheet up quite substantially. Uh, and the money supply, rather than contracting, has continued to rise, rising at a much slower pace, something around 6%. So far less than the roughly 20% increases that we have seen in the blue line. But look at the red line. If anything, it's tracking the green line. And I would say because of all the slack that existed and to, and to this day is still present, uh, we have not seen that inflation path rise uh, as much as we have for uh, the money supply. Uh, but uh, it's that green line that you want to monitor. So what would cause that green line to escalate very quickly? Well, if all of a sudden people started borrowing a lot more, banks and other lenders started lending a lot more, uh, that could cause the money supply to increase more rapidly. Uh, just we're watching that, just haven't seen it yet. Uh, and, if, and if that begins, then we can talk about altering our view with regard to the economy's growth. But I think if, it's, if that began, that could actually be a good thing because it could be a, you know, a harbinger of a much better economy, and then we'll have to adjust our policy accordingly. But the one thing we have promised the American people, everywhere from Greenspan to Bernanke and before, uh, and now Yellen, is that we're not going to let inflation get out of control, because ultimately the Fed owns inflation. It's our responsibility. Um, so the concluding points are we're looking at a year which is going to be all in all a very decent year, a better year than what we've seen in the past year. Uh, again, a bit of uncertainty, which hopefully will be clarified uh, uh, with regard to the energy story as well as world growth. But uh, we see uh, all in all uh, a pretty good year for 2015. So I'll turn it over to my colleague, uh, Rick. Thanks, Bill. And while we're doing some uh, furniture rearranging, um, happy to be here again, and thanks for inviting us back. Um, the biggest problem with having done this program now for uh, the seventh or eighth year is I've pretty well run out of jokes. I usually like to tell a joke to begin. Um, and that, not that any of these jokes are good. So today I have three light bulb jokes for you, which are really the, sort of the bottom of the barrel. But anyway, so the first one goes like this. Uh, how many University of Chicago free market economists does it take to change a light bulb? The answer, of course, is none. If the light bulb needed changing, market forces would do it. Um, the, the, the second one is, how many central bank economists does it take to change the light bulb? The answer is one. Uh, all he has to do is hold the light bulb while the world revolves around him. Um, and then the, the third one is, how many um, environmental economists does it take to change the light bulb? The answer, of course, is eight. One to change the bulb and seven to write the environmental impact analysis. Um, so um, what I'm going to do today is I, I want to, as usual, sort of put what Bill talked about, the U.S. macro picture, and bring it down to what we're seeing in Illinois and Chicago. And based on the previous years, I mean, my theme has been pretty consistent, which is Illinois and Chicago has sort of lagged the nation. So if you looked at any sort of the recovery that we've seen in Illinois, it's been slower than it's been in the nation as a whole. Um, there's a lot of reasons for why that's been the case. But the good news, sort of the optimistic side of it, is, is in 2014, we saw a significant acceleration in both Illinois and Chicago's economy. And you started to see it really close the gap in terms of where it is on sort of a growth basis with where the U.S. So with the good news part of it is, is we have seen significant improvement in terms of sort of economic output. So if you look at the biggest measure of this, it's basically just looking at the unemployment rates. Um, as you can see, in 2013, Illinois had a massive gap over where the U.S. unemployment rate was. And this really fell very dramatically throughout last year. And right now, we're really hovering sort of a basically about um, on par with the U.S. And the Chicago MSA has actually done even a little bit better. Um, so that's been a real indicator of sort of improvement conditions in terms of where things have been headed. Um, if you look at uh, sort of other measures of sort of, e you know, sort of aggregate economic activity at the Illinois level, as you can see, you know, we've seen a gain in employment over the year. We've seen new car and truck registrations surge. We've seen single-family home permits accelerate, um, and even total exports sort of grew. So again, all sorts of indicators of sort of gross activity in Illinois' economy sort of gaining some traction. Now, if you turn to Chicago, because Chicago obviously is 
really Illinois' economy. It's 72% of Illinois' economy. You can see the conditions have improved at even a faster rate. So if you look at, you know, jobs have been added, private sector jobs, about 12,000 over the last year. Um, and particularly important is it's being added in areas where we see some of the higher income growth. Um, you know, Chicago is overwhelmingly a business and professional services economy, and that's been the part of the economy that's been really sluggish in terms of recovery. And what we've seen in the last year is that's the part of the economy that started to reignite. And as business and professional services fill in, it really helps Chicago. These are high income, high wage jobs. They have big multipliers attached to them in terms of how they fil uh, filter through the rest of the economy. And so we've seen sort of some of the core industries sort of re recover. The other one that's interesting has been the improvement in transportation and warehousing. Um, we're a major logistics center, and as we've seen that also come back, that's a good indicator, again, for underlying health in our sort of local economy. Um, venture capital has really expanded pretty rapidly, and there's been a lot of discussion of one of the things that Chicago has done from a policy perspective is the creation of um, 1871, which has been really a terrific opportunity for creating a sort of a physical space in which people can see that Chicago has a very vibrant kind of innovation economy, particularly in the tech sector. And that's been seen as been one of the things that sort of has been driving more um, venture capital into the region, and that's going to be really important for our future growth. Um, again, residential building permits have looked pretty good in terms of that. And last year, Chicago almost had a record um, tourist year, um, and that's been shown both by um, employments at O'Hare have been way up in terms of that. And you can really see that Chicago has really benefited from that tourist economy, which is also very important because, again, these are dollars that are essentially being imported into our economy. Um, so that's a really good thing. Another indicator of Chicago's vitality has really been this sort of strategy, particularly by the mayor, to really sort of recruit corporate headquarters. Now, of course, many of these corporate headquarters have come at the expense of suburban locations. So it, in some ways, it's not entirely, uh, you know, not a zero-sum game. Um, but, you know, in the, since 2011, we've had 27 companies have chosen to locate um, their headquarters in Chicago. There's 31 Fortune 500s in the MSA and eight in Chicago. And that's been good because, again, that also really complements this business service base that we have. And the last thing I want to show you in terms of sort of an indicator of how strong tourism has been has really been what's been going on in the hotel sector. Um, we're really bumping up against almost uh, full capacity in terms of our hotels at this point. Um, you know, you know, hitting anywhere close to 90% during many of the months. And the average daily room rate has jumped all the way to $215 from 186 just a year ago. So again, another real good indicator of the sort of strength that we're seeing in the, the tourist and the hospitality sector. Um, this next slide just shows you again some of these figures for where job growth has really been. And again, the, the blue ones are things that I think have been really sort of key areas within Chicago's economy that have shown gains. And the idea is, is essentially this is going to continue momentum into next year. So again, we're very optimistic in terms of sort of all those sorts of good things. So okay, so with all this good news, okay, so that ends the optimistic part of my talk. Now comes the, <laughs> now comes the really depressing part. Of it. What, what could possibly go wrong? All right, so I could do by a show of hands, I bet most everybody in this room can guess what could possibly go wrong, and that's um, Illinois' fiscal situation. Um, you know, the one thing that's going to probably limit the ability for people to look at Illinois as being a great place for investment is the fact that not only Illinois, but also Chicago is in, in really precarious uh, fiscal condition at this point, um, and not with any sort of sense of what the plan is to sort of get out of this sort of fiscal problems. So what are just some of the dimensions of this sort of fiscal problem? Well, the first is unpaid bills. Um, you know, depending on who you talk to, uh, Illinois has anywhere from 4 to $5 billion of backlog bills. Um, we routinely just sort of delay payment to vendors at this point. Um, and that's one of the ways in which we balance our budget on an annual basis. Um, this hasn't gone unnoticed. Uh, S&P has this rate as the lowest state credit in the country at A minus at this point. And Wall Street has even created something that they call the Illinois effect. And the Illinois effect is, regardless of where you are in the state, you're going to pay higher when you go to the, the bond market. So even places like DuPage County, which is an extremely strong credit, is paying above what they should to issue bonds at this point, simply because of the overhang of what the Illinois fiscal situation is. So this is have a contagion effect, basically, on all municipalities in terms of their ability to issue debt at this point. Um, 
there's, we also have some other interesting uh, problems that are going to happen, which is sort of our off-balance sheet issues, which is both pension liabilities and um, OPEB or um, other post-employment benefits. Um, most of these are, uh, these are, of course, massively underfunded. We have the worst-funded pension system in the United States at this point. Um, and likely, based on what rec recent court actions have uh, looked at, it's um, likely that the, the pension reforms that were passed last year are going to be declared unconstitutional. Um, this has caused the city of Chicago's pension reform also to now be held, hauled into court. It's likely that also will be declared unconstitutional, which means we're back to square one in terms of any sort of pension issues for this state. Um, in addition, on January 1, the good news is we all got a tax cut. The bad news is the state lost $4 billion in, in money um, over the next year. Um, and that's $4 billion that they, they really don't have. So, um, you know, essentially the rollback in the income tax for both the business income tax and the personal income tax is going to create additional pressure on the fiscal situation at a time in which we really don't have much room for um, leverage. And so how, how do you do this? Well, one thing that was discussed was the uh, incoming Rauner administration suggested doing an exercise of a 20% across-the-board reduction in state spending. Um, you, you really can't do that, um, you know, to be, be quite honest. And one is that you can't reduce all agencies by 20%. Some agencies, essentially like higher education, would have to be defunded entirely um, because lots of the spending that the state does is federal pass-through money. Um, so if you reduce the agency's budget, you reduce the federal match. And so in many cases, that's really not effective. So you're only looking at where you can dis reduce on the discretionary part of the Illinois budget and that you can't get that by a 20% reduction. You'd have to reduce that um, significantly more. So that's um, also problematic. So it's hard to balance this just on the expenditure side of the budget. Um, so what can the state do? Well, we can cut the budget. Um, that clearly will happen in this um, next year, probably significant cuts to the budget. Um, shift costs onto localities. Um, I can pretty well guarantee that's going to happen. Um, you know, one of the ways in which the state can balance its budget is to push costs onto local government. Um, and what they will do is most likely is they'll increase pension costs for local governments. They'll reduce any sort of aid that they're giving to local governments. And it'll put more pressure on local governments that are, again, primarily property tax dependent. So depending on how healthy your property tax base is, that's going to have a lot to do with how well you can sort of meet these challenges. Um, revenue enhancements will also probably be discussed. That's a fancy word for tax increases. Um, one that's been discussed is expanding the sales tax to more personal services. I mean, just by comparison, Illinois taxes about 30 services currently. Um, the state of Iowa taxes about 135. Um, so clearly there's an ability for us to tax more of the service base. Um, that could raise some, some significant money. And the other, which has been kind of a third rail issue, is taxing retirement income. Um, there's not that many states that fully exempt retirement income. Illinois is one of them that does. Um, and there's not really a good economic justification for it. So while it isn't a likely outcome, it's a possible outcome for a way, again, to sort of broaden the base and raise more money. Um, so how about Chicago? So if Illinois is in all this trouble, how's Chicago doing? Well, again, the first premise, I think, is, is you have to understand that you know, states are driven by their urban economies. And so how the urban economies are doing really explains how the state's going to do. And Chicago is 72% of, of Illinois' economy. So a strong Chicago is really essential to Illinois sort of doing, uh, being successful. You know, the other problem is, is that local governments simply have much narrower tax bases. So when they try to adjust things to sort of match fiscal stress, it creates more distortion because it's, they have less ability to sort of move things on the margin. They can only work with the tax bases that are available to them. And the history in Illinois has been that often state actions actually exacerbate the ability of the city to be able to take action. So often in case the state has granted like enhancements to pension benefits without funding them. So essentially they create an additional liability without any sort of revenue being matched to it. So how bad is the problem for Chicago? Okay, so if the previous part was depressing, now we're getting suicidal at this point. Um, okay, so if you look at Chicago, if you look at total liability, all right, so this is the city's liability for pensions, 
plus you also add the Illinois state liability, you're looking at $18,596 per capita, all right? That's the unfunded liability just for the pension funds, all right? As you can see, there's no major city in the United States that's even close to that, okay, in terms of that. Um, Detroit wasn't even that bad when they were going into bankruptcy, all right? So this is a, a yawning uh, gap that the state has to fill, I mean, that the city has to fill. So how has the city also been managing other issues? So it knows it has this massive pension liability. The problem is, is the way in which it's been managing the other parts of its debt also suggests something less than a totally responsible structure. So if you look at debt issuance in the last several years, what you find is Chicago has been piling on a lot of debt. It's been issuing a lot of debt. And what's most concerning is, is now a great deal of the money that the state takes in actually goes to paying for this debt, all right? So it's the debt payments that are eating up more and more of this city budget at this point. And what's also particularly concerning is, is that most of this money now is not going to capital projects. It's going to pay for general operating expenses of the city or for other sorts of liabilities. So if you look at recent history, the red bar is taxable debt that's being issued essentially to pay for general obligations rather than uh, non-taxable debt, which is the capital funding, which is fixing our roads and our bridges and all those sorts of things. And what you can see is we're issuing a lot of taxable debt, and that's simply not a sustainable policy for Chicago. And also suggests a lot of problems in terms of what um, flexibility the city might have going forward. So the last slide before I get to my solution is, can Chicago solve its own problems? Well, the answer there is no, okay? So um, in many ways, um, Chicago really can't without, without significant distortion. Um, the first problem the city has is it has to come up with $590 million in additional pension contributions in 2015. It doesn't have this money, all right? So it's not clear how it's going to make this payment, and that's through a state mandate that they have to make this kind of payment. The, the size of the magnitude of the adjustment that would have to occur to make this was really underscored by this Cranes article last year, which suggested that if you were going to do this just with adjusting the property tax rate, you would have to raise the Chicago property tax rate 71.6% to make that $590 million payment. Um, so it would be a whopping increase. Now, it's that large because that's not even considering the payment you'd have to increase to pay for these, the uh, Chicago public school system's unfunded liability, which is even larger, all right? Um, so you would have to also increase that portion of your property tax bill just to make that up. So you're looking at you know, a massive increase in property taxes, which I think would obviously have a huge distortionary effect on Chicago. You know, as the article pointed out, the largest property tax increase rate in the history of the United States was Atlanta in 2009, now that was 36%. If Chicago did a 36% increase, it would still have to reduce spending by $293 million in order to make this property tax payment. So that goes to just how big this problem is. So on that happy note, um, I'll conclude by saying um, the, the good news is, is kind of if, if I had to characterize as the real economy of Illinois and Chicago really made a lot of strides during 2014, and I think that's based on sort of the history of what Chicago is. We are the dominant Midwestern city. We have lots of advantages when it comes to talent, when it comes to industry structure, when it comes to a lot of things that make Chicago, from those perspectives, a really great place to invest in and make it a key operational point for most businesses. You know, the, the problem is, is that not only do we have this fiscal problem that we haven't gotten a solution to, but it's the uncertainty around what that solution is going to look like. Um, a lot of recent economists have done work where they've looked at what the cost of policy uncertainty is, and they suggest it's very high because it freezes people's behaviors. You don't know what the rules of the road are going to be down the line. So until we have sort of what the path is out of this fiscal problem, it's going to be very, very hard to come to a solution that says to people, yes, in 10 years, this is what your tax structure will look like, and this is what public services will be provided. And until you get that, it makes it very hard for rational people to make investments. Um, so with that, thank you for your time and attention. I'll invite Bill back up, and we're happy to take questions. All right. So, so thank you, Rick. So thank you, Rick. And I find this, uh, we got a little cocktail table up here, and after Rick's presentation, I'm ready for a scotch. Um, I did want to do a little uh, public service announcement, a little uh, 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 advertising. Um, the f 
one of the things I think that the strengths that the Fed has is that uh, we look at a lot of information, a lot of data. I certainly in my charts and Rick's presentation, you can see a number of the outside sources that Rick was drawing on. Um, but the, one of the other strengths we have is that we also, beyond just the statistics, uh, we'd love to engage with the business sector um, and, and, and find out what economic conditions are. Many of you are aware of the Beige Book uh, that we put out eight times a year, which gives us, a, uh, and you have a chance to read through there, what's happening according to our business contacts. Um, but even the Fed can move into the 21st century, and uh, we're doing this finally uh, by doing a lot more electronic. Uh, and so while we have roundtables and symposiums at the Fed, and perhaps some of you have come and joined us at some of those, uh, we're going to make it even easier for you to share with us what you're seeing in your particular business. And we're uh, setting up an electronic survey system so that roughly eight times a year, right before the Beige Book and the Federal Mark Committee meetings, uh, we'll send out an email to you where you can fill out this confidential survey to us, and that will help us collect information from a lot more people, uh, and especially in the real estate side, where uh, we would love to hear a bit more about, because I think we're going to start seeing some more action there. Um, so we would love for you to become part of that, of, of that uh, source of information. Simply enough, uh, before you leave today, if you just want to give me your business card, we'll get you added to that uh, list, and you can participate, and I, I appreciate uh, if you do that. Thank you. All right, thank you, Rick and Bill. We have some uh, good questions coming in through the system, so uh, we'll give you a fun one to start off. What comes first, Chicago Cubs World Series or Chicago bankruptcy? <laughs> okay, uh, it's a good, good question. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting, and this comes out of the Detroit bankruptcy, is, is that um, one of the le legislative initiatives that some people have suggested this year will be municipalities will actually fight to make it easier to file for bankruptcy in Illinois. Um, municipalities can't file for bankruptcy without state approval, so it's a fairly hard process. Um, but the idea is, is that what came out of the Detroit bankruptcy is that bankruptcy could be the only way to resolve some of the pension issues. Um, because then, at that point, then it becomes pensions become part of the process of arbitration as to what the final cost structure is. Um, so one thing to watch this year is actually is whether there is a push to make it easier for um, Illinois governments, local governments, to actually file for bankruptcy as a process, um, if, in particular if the constitutionality of any of the reforms actually is, um, is uh, you know, rejected. Um, so I think that will be interesting to watch. So and I certainly hope the Cubs, I think they've made wise investments during the offseason, so I'm hopeful about them. So. Here's another one. Uh, what does the collapse in energy price mean for investments in energy efficiency and sustainable practices? Well, I think that's one of the big risks that we that we see out there is that uh, uh, there was a we haven't even witnessed it quite yet because a lot of the activity that was put in place, you're not going to also shut down something that's producing. So you're going to uh, continue that. Um, but at the same time, new activity. And I think that uh, statement I, I shared with you with regard to what a steel company has already announced this week uh, is going to, you know, with a little bit of a lag, we're going to see probably a softer aspect uh, with regard to activity in the energy sector uh, uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, and around the world. Um, that being said, uh, I think there's a, a greater risk with regard to, uh, and this is where my uncertainty, there's been a lot of junk uh, bonds that have supported some of this activity, and I think that, that those loans put things at, at some risk over there, and uh, these assets could wind up uh, you know, being transferred uh, in, 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 a in some kind of a bankruptcy uh, with some of these projects. How can we expect Russia's economic downward spiral to impact the global and U.S. economy in the coming year? Well, again, I think that we're all kind of watching that. And uh, uh, downward spiral is, I think, too early to claim that. Again, uh, blue chip sees basically no growth on that. Um, but, uh, I mean, clearly uh, their, their economies uh, being being impacted. We'll see what the revised view is. But uh, uh, I think... Uh, uh, Turmoil in, in a number of different countries, even beyond Russia. Again, as I highlighted, uh, you know, whether you want to go with uh, uh, Venezuela, Nigeria, um, uh, Iran, uh, and Iraq, for that matter. Um, uh, there's, and, and Mexico, there's uh, likely to see some, some slowing in terms of their uh, production. Uh, there, there could be some concerns uh, in some of those markets. 
How has the personal saving rate changed or improved since the Great Recession? Have we become more conservative spenders? Um, I, I thought Rick was going to be getting all these questions. Uh, uh, so the savings rate has improved. Uh, it was at very low levels, just around 1%. Uh, we're up closer to 4 to 5% today. Um, is that sufficiently high enough? Um, you know, it's higher than it was, but I think it uh, could be could could even move up higher. But keep in mind, as that savings rate goes higher, it means spending goes uh, not up as fast. So it's kind of that challenge. But I think people are a bit more conservative. Uh, one thing that I'm watching is the housing market uh, and trying to figure out, you know, whether people will want to own versus rent. And I think we've seen a lot more activity, I'm sure some of you are involved in that, uh, in terms of multifamily type housing, apartments, uh, being a more, uh, uh, you know, better market. Uh, we're certainly seeing rents doing well. Um, so, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of watching to see whether or not uh, individuals have the view that owning a piece of property is is an, is actually an investment. I'm not convinced that that has come back into that perception that people might still just be thinking about uh, their apartment or their condo or home as more of a place to live as compared to expecting a significant return. Here's one for Rick. How much impact will the financial issues of Chicago and Illinois have on property values related to homes and commercial property? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there's, there's actually been a fair amount of academic research that actually suggests that the, that's where it will primarily show up. That what you see is, is that particularly when you have a fiscal overhang, it tends to get capitalized into property values pretty quickly. Um, so, and again, because it's fairly transparent, I mean, you're gonna say that if this is the overhang debt, that you're gonna have to pay off in the future, you're gonna expect some sort of an adjustment in whatever the local asset prices are to, to compensate for that. Um, so it, it, it could be significant. I mean, the only thing going for Chicago and Chicago Metro is you have the countervailing factor of it being, you know, arguably the only global city in the Midwest. And so therefore, it also attracts investment for other reasons than just cost reasons. Um, so that, that could help moderate it. Um, but in other parts of the state, it'll probably have a more extreme effect. Do we have any uh, questions in the audience? Since it seems the solution is going to be some revenue enhancements, as they say, are raising taxes, and we look at Illinois in terms of the property taxes or sales taxes, is there any data out there that has like a total tax number of how does Illinois in terms of total taxes compare to other states in the Midwest or beyond? Yeah, um, there, there's a number actually that look at this. And Illinois, if, in terms of total taxes, um, currently ranks about 19th, all right, if you put state and local taxes together in terms of the composition. Interesting enough, the most distortionary tax for Illinois is the property tax, local property taxes, um, which run significantly higher than they do in most other states. And that's principally because we use the local property tax to pay for all of our schools. Um, you know, since we don't have as much state contributions on the school front, that tends to distort things. You know, what some have suggested is that means Illinois could tax itself more and not necessarily disadvantage its position all that much, all right, that it still has capacity to sort of move up in terms of the tax rates. Um, but I think most of the emphasis is going to be on base broadening rather than the rate structure, because the rate structure in and of itself, the sales tax is pretty high in the state, particularly when you look at the city level, you know, the add-ons in the city. You know, the sales, you know, the income tax, I think competitively, it's always been an advantage for Illinois to have a flat rate, fairly low rate income tax. But but again, maybe broadening out the base might get you something. Um, so I imagine base broadeners are going to be more part of the discussion than any sort of rate changes. Any other questions from the audience? Hi. Could you touch base on what you think the impact of the minimum uh, wage increase might be for uh, Chicago and Illinois? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, obviously it was passed and it has a ramped up level. And again, you know, like, like all good economists, I, I can argue every side of this argument, all right, um, and, and make you completely unsatisfied by my answer, all right? So, um, so you know, what, what I'm going to tell you is, is there's lots of research that's been done that has suggested rises in the minimum wage is are neither 
terribly positive nor terribly negative, all right? So they haven't been shown to cause a big drop in employment. They haven't necessarily been shown to show big gains in wages that then get translated into more consumer spending, right? Which are usually the arguments around it. The biggest problem I think Bill would probably agree and would chime in on this is, 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 is you want the wages to be somehow related to what the productivity is of the job. So artificially raising wages is going to create certain distortions in the economy because if the, if the job doesn't support a $15 an hour wage, then you're going to hire fewer people to do it, all right? That's just going to be sort of natural economics of it. And it can disadvantage some people who would be helped by having a lower entry wage. Um, so, you know, economists will tell you that the, the net macro effect of this thing tends not to be large either way. Um, but the localized effect to specific industries can be quite large. I mean, you know, if, if your cost of business is very much a lot of low-wage employees, obviously this increase can be significant. Yeah, one of our uh, labor economists came out with a little study on this. You can go to see it on the Fed Letter series that we have online. Dan Aronson uh, came out with one, which said that you get a, a, a stimulative bump because you're basically giving a bit more money uh, to individuals which have a higher uh, propensity to spend. Um, and so you get a little bit of an uptick in terms of your spending. But on the longer run, it actually washes out because you do see prices rise and businesses will make the adjustments. Um, but I, I've, I've got a number of concerns with regard to it. Number one, these type of minimum wage, if you're trying to really solve and help people in terms of income, they're really uh, a very coarse way of, of dealing with that problem uh, when you consider the fact that there's a very large share of the people earning minimum wage who are teenagers and, you know, could be from wealthy families and uh, the very, you know, it's only a, a, about a third of those workers who are earning it as a sole income uh, for, for their family. So it's a, you're really affecting a very larger population, especially when we're, we're challenged with opportunities for low-skilled workers, which is why these jobs pay so little, as Rick mentioned, it's a productivity thing. These are low-skilled workers. Um, participation rates among the young, uh, those who are 16 to 19 years old, uh, turn of the turn of uh, the century, uh, you know, 2000, it was over 50%. Now it's about a third. So we've seen a very significant reduction in those individuals. And I think there are invaluable skills that people learn on their first job. And, and, and by not having that opportunity, uh, I think that, that we could be doing some damage to our labor markets in the longer run. And with regard to the minimum wage, I mean, as uh, we'll go, I'll harken back to Friedman, uh, Friedman said that the real minimum wage that always exists out there is zero because that's the wage you get when you don't get hired by the company that won't hire you because the wages are set higher than what the market clearing force would be. All right, Rick and Bill, thank you very much. Can we get a round of applause? Thank you, guys. Two quick reminders. Please remember to fill out your surveys and bring your business cards up. Thanks, everybody.